0: Welcome to the Principled Podcast brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace change makers.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm Carolyn Grace content writer at LRN, and one of the team members working behind the scenes on each podcast episode. As we prepare for season seven of The Principled Podcast, we're sharing some of our favorite conversations from season six. This one is between Emily Miner and Susan Divers, two leading members of the LRN advisory practice. Emily and Susan talk about the difference between rules and values in the context of ethics and compliance and how values can build effective ENC practices that drive better business outcomes. Let's dig in, enjoy.
2: Rules are good, but values are better. Values have the power to guide behavior, shape culture, and strengthen businesses, empowering them to outperform. But what exactly does it mean to take a values-based approach to ethics and compliance? Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Miner, Senior Ethics and Compliance Advisor. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Susan Divers, Director of Thought Leadership and Best Practices. We're going to be talking about how companies can leverage core values to build effective ethics and compliance practices that drive better business outcomes. Susan brings more than 30 years' experience in both the legal and ENC spaces to this topic area. With subject matter expertise in anti corruption, export controls, sanctions, and other key areas of compliance. Susan, thanks for joining me on the Principal Podcast.
3: It's my pleasure, Emily. It's always so nice to talk to you.
2: Yeah. So, Susan, your background has given you a unique perspective on this topic of rules versus values. You're a former chief ethics and compliance officer a member of the D.C. Bar, and you're a qualified solicitor to the High Court of England and Wales. Having sat on both the legal and ethics and compliance sides of the table, can you break down the idea of rules are good, values are better for our listeners? What does that really mean? What are values and why are they, quote unquote,
1: better?
3: Well, that's a great place to start, Emily. And there are a couple of really key points to make in this area and the first is that it's not an either or choice it's not like you have values but you don't have rules and you should never have rules without values one way to think about it is that rules provide the structure for an organization in its compliance area but values provide the motivation and are what actually lead people to do the right thing even if it's not required and there are also values are positive and aspirational if in our dealings with each other we think about treating each other with respect then there's not a rule for every occasion where we interact but there is a value which is respect and even if i disagree with you or you disagree with me we're going to accord each other that kind of basic respect. So it's a really fundamental difference. And another way to think about it that I like as an analogy is that rules are the skeleton, if you will, but values are the blood and the heart in our own natural systems. And so why are values better? Values ask people to Live their values in a sense and make them real. They ask people to consider much more than whether they're breaking a rule or going to break a law, because that's a pretty minimal standard. And when you do that, you're encouraging people to do the minimum, but we can talk about that a little bit later. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does. Maybe to put it another way, too, rules are what I'm hearing from you rules are kind of what you can and can't do, whereas values might be what you should and shouldn't do. So to your point about, you know, they're not being a rule for every occasion. Although I I do appreciate your your skeleton analogy as we're coming into the Halloween season. So apropos. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So kind of following up on that, can you share some real world examples where you've seen this, you know, as you put it, it's not an either or, it's, it's a both and, but where you've seen kind of the rules are good, values are better, premise play out.
3: Sure. Well, I'm going to start with actually kind of a family example, and then give one or two kind of corporation organization examples. So when I talk about this in front of compliance conferences and all, I usually ask people in the audience to raise their hand if they've ever raised teenagers, and a large number of people do. And to just take that example, if you say to teenagers, you can't do this, you can't have people over if we're not home, you can't have an unauthorized party, you can't do this, you can't do that, it tends to sort of sound like blah, blah, blah. And then they sort of think about ways to kind of get around that, in my experience. But if you say to them, this is our family, and we're all in this together, and we all depend on each other's behavior to make it work, and if you do things behind our back that could trigger bad consequences for all of us, that affects the family as a whole, and it also means we can't trust you. So we're asking you not to do these risky things, and that's a much more motivating, and respectful way to approach it. And in companies and organizations, approaching people with respect and saying, the rules are there as guidance, but then we don't want you to meet the minimum. We want you to think of the organization as a whole and to think of our brand and our what we're trying to do, our mission and our purpose, and tailor your behavior to that not arguing about whether it's not okay to spend a $1,000 a person on an elaborate dinner, but it is okay to spend a $1,000 a person on an elaborate golf outing. So it's really a very profound difference in focus.
2: Mm. Yeah, that idea of kind of leading with your values and that being a demonstration of respect and an extension of trust to employees, I think is is really powerful. You know, I, as you know, a lot of my work at LRN centers around understanding organizational culture and what motivates employee behavior. And when I have conversations, you know, focus groups and interviews with people in our client partner walls, that's such a big theme always, you know, this idea of feeling respected and feeling trusted, treat me like an adult. So going back to your example of the, of, of the teenagers, you know, just being real and, and talking about it openly and, you know, there's no kind of smoke and mirrors behind it. So yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Good tips as well for when my children become teenagers.
3: <laughs> yeah. your seatbelt.
2: <laughs> yeah. So you kind of thinking about the, we're talking about ethics and compliance and, the global regulators are obviously key stakeholders in kind of the, the design and implementation of, of an ethics and compliance program, regulators being the ones that set out the policy requirements, i.e. the rules for organizations. But we're seeing now that regulators around the world are also talking about the culture of compliance, to quote the Department of Justice, and they're talking about the role of values, which is, you know, really a shift from the language that was used, you know, even just a few years ago. When did you notice that shift? And what do you think catalyzed it?
3: It definitely started happening as early as 2012. I think it was Mary Jo White when she was the chairwoman of the SEC gave a speech and she said, you have to focus on your culture. And that was kind of shocking at the time because up to that point, some very interesting things written in this area. There's a BSR white paper from 2017, for example, that talks about how up until around then, compliance and ethics had been criminalized in the sense that there was a criminal justice approach this is the rule, you can't break it. If you do, you can go to jail and get fired. Okay, but that doesn't encourage me to do the right thing if there's no rule or to err on the side of doing the right thing, even if it's legitimately gray. And as I mentioned before, it encourages gaming the system, arguing, well, I didn't actually breach that rule. My behavior may have been bad may have been terrible even but it didn't actually breach a rule so you can't do anything to me so regulators finally kind of caught up with that idea because even though Sarbanes-Oxley which was put in place after the Enron scandal largely and other very detailed laws I think Sarbanes-Oxley I saw somewhere weighs like 30 pounds if you um put it all in one place in terms of printed pages wow (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's kind of scary Sarbanes-Oxley didn't really change behavior and we then had the financial crisis and regulators started realizing that the answer to better behavior preventing misconduct and generally being more effective might not be just layering on more rules and more rules and ethics and compliance officers realized that the more effective approach might not be always getting up and screaming about penalties and all the bad things that could happen. But again, taking a much more positive approach and saying, you know, again, we're all in this together and we're gonna trust you to do the right thing, even if it costs you and the company an opportunity And we're not going to rely strictly on, you know, you're having to look up pages and pages of complex policies to try to figure out what you're actually supposed to do. You know, we're going to encourage you to to seek guidance and we're going to have a welcoming attitude towards questions. We're not going to say, what did you do? Why are you asking that? And as a former senior executive at AECOM once put it, it's a shift from being a cop to a coach.
2: Mm, I love that, a cop to a coach. And, you know, that one of the other trends or shifts in the regulatory space has been around accessibility and that kind of, I'm coming back to that in listening to what you were just saying, because values when shared and understood across an organization allow for a more simplified accessible approach to how we govern our behavior. To your point, you know, not having to look up pages and pages and kind of parse out whether this crosses that line versus this other line, but really just more fundamentally, is this aligned with who we are, what we believe in, what we stand for? So it's a powerful tool from an accessibility and simplification standpoint too.
3: Yeah, it's your North Star. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to look up and see the North Star than it is to read a policy on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: So, you mentioned AECOM, and you were in house for a long time as a chief ethics and compliance officer, starting up two ethics and compliance programs, including at AECOM. Were you always oriented towards this idea of rules and values, or were there kind of certain experiences in your professional career or your personal, you know, life with your teenage sons that impressed upon you kind of the value, the benefit of a values-based approach?
3: Well, I was really lucky when I started at AECOM because I had amazing colleagues and it was a perfect storm of goodness. The head of corporate communications who later went on to win every imaginable award, including having his picture up in Times Square because he won the Arthur Page award. And then the head of internal audit who came on, the three of us really worked together and we quickly sort of got it that making good ethics part of our brand and our mission was very feasible at AECOM. Our mission was to enhance the world's natural, built, and social environments in which we operate. And that was back you know, in the early 2000s before people were even thinking about ESG. And the company really lived up to that. They did a lot of very creative and very far-seeing work on a pro bono basis of what does a sustainable city look like. So we said, rather than again make this cop shop, let's make it part of and parcel of what we do and we did in terms of communication and in terms of way the way we ran the program and then as a result we won unexpectedly world's most ethical company on our first year of trying and I think we got it five years thereafter and that became part of our brand and so we had a little toolkit that you could put into a bid an RFP response that sort of said, this is what we've won and this is what our program looks like. And we really sort of walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And so that really resonated at AECOM. People liked that. And we had a great ethics and compliance webpage, if I do say so myself. It was interactive, it was engaging, it was kind of fun. We'd have quizzes, we'd do profiles of people who did the right thing, even if it was difficult and that kind of momentum tends to breed more momentum in that direction and occasionally i found myself talking people out of like abandoning a bit or something and i'd say well you know there's a way to mitigate that risk effectively mm-hmm. and so that was a nice place to be and it really was a good illustration of how values can be the the life and the blood and the heart of an organization's program
2: yeah thank you for sharing that i think the just when you were talking about the ethics and compliance webpage and the interactivity and quizzes and stories those are all such powerful engagement techniques and you're right it's catalytic where it's you know if there's a spark and then it breeds more ripple effect if you will you know people want to be highlighted for doing the right thing and, and how great to say, you know, my company is globally recognized as one of the most ethical companies. And I've got to make sure that I help us live up to that standard. And thank you for those specific examples, kind of getting into specific examples, we encourage our client partners to take a values-based approach to ethics and compliance. know what are some of the ways some of the other ways that that looks like in practice
3: as you know every year we publish a program effectiveness report which is really our flagship piece of research every year and last year we highlighted stories of companies really using values to keep it together during the pandemic crisis that unfolded last year and the stories are very inspiring. I'd urge everyone listening to go download our most recent program effectiveness report 2021 off our website. But one in particular really struck me, and that was Braskin, wherein they needed to keep plants operating in order to keep the electrical grid in the United States healthy and fully operating. and. There's no law or rule in the world that would allow you to compel employees in those circumstances to self-isolate at a plant for 30 days at a time. But what they did is ask employees if they would do that and people volunteered. And they went and slept ate at the plants for 30 days at a time. And of course the company paid them extra and ensured that they had facilities and lodging and food but they're very proud of that experience and it was something that brought the company together and again just as we were talking about a econ people were proud of the fact that they had an ethical company and at braskin the same thing happened there wasn't a rule that says you must do this because then people would have resisted it most likely but it was a value that this is what we do this is consistent with our mission and this is consistent with doing the right thing by the social environments in which we operate in our communities. It's really a great example. I mean, I could go on and on. There are, other, there are many other examples too, but generally during the pandemic, people really rose to the occasion, used values such as making programs much more people-centered. In the past, it's part of the legacy of a very legalistic approach. Programs have been way too legalistic. There's not been that much regard for the impact on people, or as you were talking about, simplicity. So for example, Dell moved big chunks of its program onto our Catalyst app, and is even moving more onto Catalyst app because employees had limited bandwidth and they needed to be able to take training if they were standing, you know, in the grocery line with a mask on rather than be chained to a desktop. So again, it's the most powerful way to really motivate people and to change behavior for the better.
2: Yeah, the Braskin example is it's so inspiring and just, you know, I know that there are so many other examples out there of organizations and people that you know, really rose to the occasion and kind of demonstrated the best of humanity as the COVID crisis was was unfolding and, and still today. And you also talked about our flagship research. I think we can probably put a link to the report in this podcast page so that people can access it. But as director of Thought Leadership for Advisory, you lead this research and have for many years. What does the data tell us? About the prevalence of values in, you know, or values orientation, a values-based approach in ethics and compliance, or the impact of such an orientation?
3: Good question. And that's something we look at every year, as you know, Emily. And what it shows is that the most effective programs, there's a very strong correlation between having an effective ethics and compliance program and being values-based. It just works better. And if you look at our report and we ask questions about organizational justice, which is just a key plank of having an effective ethics and compliance program, having a values-based approach is just much more effective than relying simply on rules. And it's also, as we've talked about, much more consistent with the epiphany that regulators had i guess almost 10 years ago where they realized that the sort of you know regulation heavy approach had its limitations so we see this all the time in our research that a values based approach simply works better
2: mm-hmm. yeah and i think one of the data points that was really compelling for me in our research that we did this year was how the percentage of organizations who said that they relied on their values to help them navigate the COVID crisis, I don't know that I was necessarily expecting it to be such an overwhelming percentage. And it was incredibly gratifying to see that. I think it's one of those situations where we could have all gone, you know, in one direction or another. And it's really encouraging that Um, So many organizations, COVID has been a catalyst for them to really connect more deeply with their values. And I know that you've already talked about how it seems as if this is shaping how ethics and compliance programs are evolving kind of beyond just the, the crisis response, but really like what is a new normal moving forward, such as the example of Dell bringing so much of their program onto a mobile app that way it's accessible to employees anytime, anywhere.
3: Yeah, and interestingly, I just looked at our report last year, and 79% of all of our respondents who were above 600 respondents worldwide said that their ethical culture got stronger as a result of their response to the pandemic. And I don't think we were expecting that, really, but it's very encouraging and very heartening because people came together and helped each other through the crisis And our data shows that boards rose to the occasion, senior leaders rose to the occasion, and largely managers rose to the occasion. And again, it was an effort to pull together and help each other. So it's really an inspiring story. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So Susan, for our listeners who might be, you know, just starting to build out an ethics and compliance function in their organizations, What key steps would you recommend they take to ensure their program leads with core values? What's square one?
3: Well, square one is to realize you can do it, that it's not an either or a choice. I think the first thing is to avoid what I would call blind benchmarking, where a lot of times I think people, when they start out, they kind of want a compliance program in a box. So that means a checklist. And the regulators are pretty adamant that that's the wrong approach because every company has different needs and different risks. You can be small and high risk. You can be large and be relatively low risk. You can have data privacy risks, but other companies don't. You can have corruption risks, but other companies don't. So what you need to do is look at what first start with your risks and then say okay what are the values-based approaches we can take to mitigate those risks and then you still have your infrastructure but you gear your training towards encouraging people to act with integrity in every circumstance that they encounter and we recommend in our policy simplification work that you make that very explicit very simple You say we act with integrity everywhere, every time, in every circumstance. So instead of parsing through to see if you can offer a grease payment to jump the queue at customs, you sort of rely on that principle. And that actually is easier for new programs in some ways. Because if you get that right, you've got a really good basis to build on, and then you incorporate those values in the infrastructure that you build out whether it's communications whether it's training and even audit and assurance can be infused with values as well as policies and so you're starting from the right place you're not building up some elaborate scaffolding i saw one of the airlines bragging about a five-page rule book but they're also the airline that's had major scandals with people following procedures blindly and dragging people off of airplanes. So get it right from the very beginning. And first you'll be more effective. And then secondly, you'll save yourself a lot of grief down the line.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a gift in some sense. So, you know, maybe this is a a tougher question for those organizations that have more mature ethics and compliance programs that might already have that scaffolding in place, what steps should they take or what would you recommend they take to kind of keep their program on the right track and centering their values?
3: Well, to go back to the old maxim, what gets measured gets done. And really looking at your ethical culture, you just can't leave it on autopilot. You can't leave your risk analysis on autopilot either and your ethical culture and your risks are very interrelated so spend time and of course you work in that area and i do too to some degree of looking at ethical culture and saying what are the levels of trust and respect in the various business units or areas of the world are there hot spots are there places where there are lagging indicators that we can delve deeper into and really understand what some of the dynamics are, places where organizational justice isn't strong or retaliation is high. So you have to spend time on it. It's like watering the roots of the plant. And then you have to be willing to really talk about values. Again, you know, a lot of companies, they get it right in the code of conduct and they put the code of conduct out there but they don't really talk about values. And I know you did some work a couple of years ago in this area with a values jam for the UN Global Compact, which was able to be done online. And people appreciate that. People across the company like it when they're asked meaningful questions about values and whether the company is living up to that. So I think that's absolutely fundamental to keeping it going and keeping it real and keeping it alive.
2: Yeah, and it creates more ownership, too, when people are involved in the process and their perspective is invited or they're invited to share their perspective so that it's not this kind of top-down kind of talking point mandate, but really something that is discussed and explored at at all levels of the organization.
3: I couldn't agree more.
2: well susan it is always such a pleasure to talk to you about these topics thank you for joining me on this episode
3: it was my pleasure emily i and i feel the same way it's always nice for us to get a chance to talk about important issues
2: Mm -hmm. and to all of you listening thank you
1: that's a wrap for this encore episode we loved having emily and susan on the principled podcast for this discussion You can learn more about the importance of leading with values by downloading a copy of the 2021 Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report at LRN.com or by clicking the link in our show notes. Thanks again for listening. I'm Carolyn Grace, and we'll see you next week.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning, ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.